ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 20, and this is going to be a resurrection uh, Sunday, all right? It's going to feel a lot like Easter. It's going to feel like the Lord's Day. Every day, it's a day that we celebrate the resurrection, but Christ is risen is the title for this morning's sermon. We're looking at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and again, this is Easter in July. Welcome again to, to uh, Placerita Bible Church, John 20. Let's look at verses 1 through 10 about the resurrection, and we'll jump right in to our time together this morning. Here's what the Apostle John writes. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself." Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Father, we bow our heads, our hearts before you this morning. We thank you for the resurrected king that is resurrecting me, resurrecting each one of us who are in Christ today. We thank you for this resurrection account that by reading it and studying it, that we might be transformed by it this week as we live our lives for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been more than just hinted at in the Bible. It has been announced. It has been foreshadowed. It has been proclaimed. It has been pictured. It has been preached. And it all started with the divine promise and prophecy of what we call the proto-evangelum, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. You remember, after creation and after the fall in the garden, God cursed the serpent and then he said, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first place in the Bible, proto-evangelum, where we see the gospel given. And for the rest of human history, there would be a fight between man and between the devil. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, would conquer Satan with a death blow to his head, but only after Satan would bruise Christ's hill. We see this in the New Testament when we read Romans 16, 20, where Paul writes this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
And guess what? God did crush Satan. And because Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, defeated the devil, he has defeated death and he has defeated the grave. And because of this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will give you the victory over sin and over temptation and over the powers of this dark world. And after Jesus' heel had been bruised by Satan, Jesus crushed the devil's head once and for all at the resurrection. So we see the gospel all throughout the Bible in the passing of the ark of Genesis 6 through 8 through the waters of judgment onto the cleansed earth foreshadowed the same great event of the resurrection. Peter discusses that in 1 Peter 3.20 when he says that God saved Noah and his family through an ark which passed safely through the water. And then Peter says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in that passage, Peter is connecting the ark of Noah from Genesis 6 to 8 to say, you know what, that's just a picture of Jesus Christ who saves you when you make an appeal to him in good faith that you too can be cleansed and saved from God's judgment. We see it again in Genesis 22. We see the resurrection and that deliverance of Isaac from the altar after he had been given up three days before in Genesis 22:4, They traveled three days and then Abraham uh, had this future uh, sacrifice that he was about to do with Isaac and yet we read in Hebrews 11:9. It says this, Hebrews 11, 9, uh, 11, 19, he considered that God was able to raise him, referring to Isaac, from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even Isaac there on the altar in Genesis 22 is a picture of the resurrection. The crossing of the Red Sea by Israel on dry ground happened three days after the slaying of the Passover lamb. It could be considered a type of resurrection for the Christian who is in Christ. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And because we've crossed over From death to life, we start a new life in Jesus, our resurrected Savior who has defeated all of our enemies and who has delivered us from bondage. The emergence of Jonah was three days after he was in the belly of the great fish, forecast the Savior's deliverance from the tomb on the third day. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what we're saying this morning. The resurrection is not a whisper. The resurrection isn't something that was so mysterious that it was never really proclaimed clearly. Time and time again, from Genesis to Exodus to throughout the entire Old Testament, is the coming of of understanding more and more and more that Jesus Christ must come, that he must die, and that he must be raised on the third day. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And what I'm saying to you this morning is something greater than the ark of Noah is here. Something greater than the ram of Abraham is here. Something greater than the military victories of Moses and Jonah is here. Something greater than the manna, than the Ark of the Covenant, and then the temple is here. And that something is a someone and is a risen Savior. His name is Jesus, and he lives forevermore. 
That's why we're gathered this morning. We're gathered together as a church because our God reigns and Jesus Christ lives and the Holy Spirit fills all of those who repent and trust in him by faith. And so I'm excited this morning that we could just consider this truth written in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, uh, 55 through 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You need an encouraging message this morning? It's the resurrection. You need freedom from sin today? It's the resurrection. You need help with your depressed feeling about what's going on in our culture? You need to look to the resurrection. You need help in your marriage today? You need to look to Christ who has been resurrected. You need help with your kids today having some challenges of how to parent well at home? You need to look to the resurrection because the resurrection changes everything. It changes you, it changes how you evaluate life, it changes how you live, and you can never get beyond the resurrection. You can never get beyond singing that last song that we sing, that his resurrection is resurrecting me. It is a one-time occurrence when you get saved, and it is a daily occurrence every day as we look to Christ and look to the gospel and look to our risen Savior that he fills us with life and he gives us power to walk in obedience to him. And so this morning, I want to give you three heads this morning to give you some key details that surround the empty tomb. Are you ready? Our first major heading this morning is this. Number one, the consideration, consideration for the body of Christ. Okay, and your first blank says this, Christians worship on Sunday. Notice verse one, chapter 20, Gospel of John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb Early. I just want you to know that Christians worship on Sunday. Old Testament believers were to worship on the Sabbath, which was on Saturday. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, the seventh day, he did what? He rested. So he created six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he has done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So in the created order of creation day one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven he rested, he, in, in, he institutionalizes, if you will, a day of worship in our week. And for the Old Testament, all the way up into the resurrection, that day was to be done on the Sabbath. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, God gave 10 commandments, and it was so important to God that Israel observed the Sabbath, that it's included in the 10 commandments as the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 9, say, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, and you shall do uh, all your work, verse 10, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. It was important to observe a day, the Sabbath, on Saturday, throughout Jewish history, to remember what God had done in creation, to revere him as the great God over all, and to worship him on that special day. 
Now, I've got news for you this morning. The resurrection did not happen on Saturday. It did not happen on a Saturday. As you well know, it happened on Sunday, which is considered the first day of the week. And from resurrection morning until this very Sunday, Christians have been worshiping on Sunday in remembrance of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And we see Christians worshiping on the first day of the week all throughout the New Testament. Acts chapter 20 verse 7, on the first day of the week when we gather together to break bread. We see it again in 1 Corinthians 16 2, on the first day of every week each one of you is to put something aside. Later in the book of Revelation, John reveres, uh, reveals to us that on Sunday, which he calls the first day of the week or the Lord's day. He says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so in the New Testament, we are never told to keep the Sabbath. If you look carefully at the New Testament, nine out of 10 of the 10 commandments are reiterated and upheld. One of them is not. It's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Jesus never commented on that. The apostles never commented on that. It was never intended to continue to keep the Sabbath. It was an old covenant day of worship. It was the right thing to do from creation all the way until Jesus came. But now everything changes because we've left the old covenant and we've moved into a new covenant. And Jesus is saying, and the Jews, by the way, got so hung up about the Sabbath that that was their God. They were so idolatrous about keeping the Sabbath, they went beyond what the scriptures said they should do on the Sabbath, and they added extra man-made laws to the Sabbath, so much so that it became rank legalism. And they loved the Sabbath, and they used it to exercise control and power over their culture. And I think that the reason, if you were to ask, hey, Adam, why did Jesus, why was he raised on Sunday instead of Saturday if that was the special day? I think it's because Jesus wanted to break the back of legalism in a Jewish culture and say, you know what, we're done with the Sabbath. It's now going to be on Sunday because we need to rectify how you guys have abused what the Sabbath was intended for in the first place. And so God in his providence, in his sovereignty, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead and instituted the new covenant, a new sense of worship. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has now come. And all throughout Jesus' life, even before he was dead and resurrected, he started kind of reminding the Jews of this. In Matthew 12, 8, he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, the Pharisees were always picking at him. Why are you doing this on the Sabbath? Why are you doing that? By the way, he never broke a Sabbath law from the Bible. He only broke their man-made laws that made them upset. And so Jesus, you have to understand, he created the Sabbath. He was there. He was the agent of creation, Hebrews tells us. Jesus did good works of healing on the Sabbath, which infuriated the Pharisees. Jesus observed the Sabbath. Jesus, get this, he fulfilled the Sabbath. And Jesus is now our rest. And through the gospel, we can have that Sabbath rest every single day. And that's why we make it our habit as New Testament believers to gather together and worship a risen Savior every single Sunday. Quarantine or not, we're worshiping Jesus every single Sunday. He is Lord over the Sabbath. That's why Christians now worship on a Sunday, and it is to celebrate the resurrection. 
So that's what we're reading here in verse 1 on the first day of the week. Now, if you look at your next blank, those who are forgiven love much. Those who are forgiven much love much. Let's continue to look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Those who are forgiven much love much. We're talking about Mary Magdalene, who was there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Mary's sister, with Salome, and with Mary, the wife of Clopas. And it is unclear if Mary, the mother of Jesus, stayed at the cross all the way till Jesus' death and burial. I told you a few weeks ago, John may have taken her away right before the darkness came for three hours. But the synoptic gospels record for us that Mary Magdalene was there. She was there all the way to the end, and she saw where the tomb was. She saw where they laid Jesus in the tomb. In fact, if you'll remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had taken Jesus' body and placed it in Joseph's tomb. Joseph was a rich man, and he and Nicodemus were both part of the Sanhedrin. They finally leave the Jewish culture, leave the Old Testament emphasis, become probably believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, best we can tell. They revere the body of Christ. They wrap it up in linen with this myrrh, aloes, and spices, 75 pounds worth, to preserve the body and to promote a good smell as they assume the putrefaction of the body would soon take place. And so Mary Magdalene is not alone when she comes on that Sunday morning. If you just read John's account, you might think maybe she's there by herself, but the synoptic gospels record that several other women came with her. And when they came, uh, we're told in Mark 16, 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they may go and anoint him. They wanted to preserve the body of Jesus. These women loved Jesus. These women had great devotion for their Lord. And even though Joseph and Nicodemus had brought 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh, these ladies said, you know what, we're going to get some more. We're going to buy some more. We're going to go pay our respects at the tomb, and we're going to come because we want to make sure Jesus' body is well cared for. In fact, if you remember in John eleven thirty nine, 39, talking about the body being cared for because the Jewish system of burial did not include embalming, and so the body would go into what's called putrefaction, where it would begin to rot. And in fact, when Lazarus had died, he was in the tomb for four days. You might remember in John eleven thirty nine 39 says, Jesus said, take away the stone, and Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. So she was concerned about what the body would smell like. In fact, in the old King James version, it just simply said, he stinketh. And so she was concerned about that. So these ladies were probably thinking, you know what? We're going to go take care of Jesus' corpse. We love this man. We believe him to be the savior of the world. We care for his body. So these ladies thought, let's go and show our care and our consideration for Christ's body and let's anoint him. And I believe that this speaks volumes about their devotion to Christ. They had such a respect for Jesus that they were willing to come early to the grave on the third day and anoint his body. And these ladies cared more about the dead body of Jesus Christ than they cared about the living Pharisees. They would rather be with a dead man who had touched their soul and changed their life than all these religious people who were walking around in their piety. They cared more about Jesus' corpse 
Then they cared about their own comfort. They got up at daybreak and they wanted to go and pay their respects to Jesus. They showed more of a desire to be with Jesus' dead body than sometimes you and I show a desire to spend time with the living Christ. For those of us who are lazy, I'm challenging you this morning to say they were willing to get up early and spend time with a corpse. I hope that you would be willing to get up early this week, and I'm not saying you have to only do your quiet time, you get what I'm saying, in the morning, but that there would be sacrifice in your heart and life where you say, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to spend time with a living Christ. They got up at daybreak. They had this great desire to be there with him. There is a certain devotion that we see here, a certain loyalty, a certain allegiance, a certain dedication. There's an admiration. There's a certain staunchness of fondness and affection for Christ that they got up early to come to the tomb. I mean, they didn't even know if they would be able to get into the tomb. You remember, Mark 16, 3 says, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Again, why are these women doing this? I'll tell you why they're doing this. They're going there because they just want to be close to where the presence of Jesus was, at least in his bodily uh, existence. And so those who are forgiven much, love much. Because Mary Magdalene was forgiven much. She's confused often as being one of the harlots that's mentioned in scripture. I don't think that the Bible clearly teaches that she was a harlot, but it does teach that she was demon-possessed. She had seven demons that were inside of her, and Jesus cast them out. Mary Magdalene knew what it was like to be in bondage, and she may well have lived a very, very sinful life. She knew what it was like to be in bondage to the devil. She knew what it was like to be free. She knew what it was like to be a slave to her sin, and she knew what it was like to be a servant of Christ. In fact, if you've watched that movie, The Chosen, that a lot of folks are talking about, it's on YouTube. I think it was directed by Jerry Jenkins' son. Uh, it's a great uh, movie about our, our, a series about Christ. And the first one is about Mary Magdalene. We watched it the other night. And it made us uncomfortable on the first uh, setting because Mary Magdalene is in there and she's tormented and tortured to the point to where we were like, hey kids, I don't know if you want to watch this. You know, we had to cover the little one's eyes because she's screaming in this room and just writhing and tearing up furniture. And it's a scary thing to be possessed by the devil. And that was Mary Magdalene. And then at the end of the episode, it's such a powerful moment where Jesus sets her free. And he says, you are mine. I am your redeemer. I chose you. And then all of a sudden she's in her normal mind again. That's what happened to Mary Magdalene. She's now a beautiful servant of Christ. And I tell you what, she's been forgiven much. She wanted to love much. And that's a principle that we see throughout the scripture. Jesus teaches about it in Luke 7, 41. He says a certain money lender had two debtors. He owed one owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. So this, this guy has two guys who owe him a debt. One's 500 denarii, one's 50. He forgives both of them. And Jesus asked the question, now which one of them will love him more? Simon Peter answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So we understand in scripture, there is a principle that Jesus teaches that he who has been forgiven much 
loves much. Jesus is simply making the point that the one who had the larger debt canceled will likely love the one who forgave him more. And then Jesus continues in Luke 7, 44, he turns to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now this isn't Mary Magdalene, but it's a different lady. He's at Simon's house and now he's teaching a few people there. And he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid growing up, I used to think, well, only great sinners can really love Jesus a lot. And so when I would hear a testimony, I remember hearing the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir in in New York. And I remember seeing them on, uh, you know, like on a video, singing and sharing testimonies of how how drug addict after drug addict would give their life to Christ. And then they would join the choir. And then they would sing these incredible songs of worship to God. And they would share their testimony. And they would just like be on fire. And you would hear these stories about, you know, how God delivered them from this and that. And I remember I used to sit there and think like, well, I guess, I guess I'll never be able to love Jesus that much unless I do something really bad. And then if I, you know, if I kill a few people, if I become a drug addict, if I go to the casinos, watch it, all right, we're watching you guys. Uh, If I do this or that, then maybe I'll be able to love Jesus a lot because that's what this principle says. Do you know what I want to say to you this morning? I think that we've been thinking about the principle all wrong because here's the fact. Each one of us, are great sinners. Each one of us have sinned against a holy God, which means you and I deserve hell. We deserve God's judgment for all eternity. And if you're raised in a Christian home, you might be the worst of all because of your tendency towards self-righteousness, which is evil and it stinketh in God's sight. So the perspective we got to have this morning is like, Oh, I am a wretched sinner. I can love much because I have been forgiven much. But if you think, oh, I haven't done that much bad. I mean, the worst thing I ever did was tear the tag off a pillowcase one time when my mom wasn't looking, so I guess I'm okay. Then you're blind to your sin and you don't understand the depravity of your soul. You prideful pig. If that's you this morning, you need to understand Oh my goodness, I've sinned against the holy God. I need to have that perspective. God, show me my sin so that when I see how much I've actually been forgiven of, that I can be like that 10,000 talent sinner that can now understand that's me. Like I owe God a debt I could never pay. Like I owe him $10 billion and I could never pay and God has forgiven me much. I mean, don't you want to love him much today? Or do you want to be the Christian who's like, oh, on the love chart, I'm like way down here. Well, why are you down here? Because I've never done anything bad. And I went to the master's college. And I was homeschooled before that. 
in a Christian homeschool environment. You know, it's like, whatever. Like, you you know, we love homeschoolers. We love Christian schoolers. Do we love public schoolers? You bet we do. We love public school kids. What I'm saying is this. We all have been forgiven much. You can love much today. All it is is a perspective change. You'd be like, oh my goodness, that we can love much like this lady, like Mary Magdalene, like any sinner who you've ever seen in the Bible and say, Jesus, you saved my soul. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to serve you with everything I am. The perspective is you got to realize you've been forgiven much. And as soon as you realize you've been forgiven much, you will love much. May God increase our love for him and may our desire to be in in his presence and to come to where he is. And no matter if there's a stone in the way or we think the body's dead or whatever, I just want to be where Jesus is because he changed my life. And as Mary Magdalene and the other women approach the tomb by faith, though they're still asking the question, who's going to roll the stone away? Your next blank says, the impossible happened. The impossible happened. The end again of verse one, they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I mean, just as these ladies come around the bend, just as they started asking each other, who's going to roll away the stone? Now they see that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It was Matthew's account that tells us how the stone got there in the first place. Matthew 27, 62 and following says, On the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we must remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first and Pilate said to them you have a guard of soldiers go make it as secure as you can so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard so the Pharisees and Pilate which are strange bedfellows, by the way, because they hated each other, but they joined together because they hated Jesus more. They're still working together after Jesus' death to make sure that the disciples didn't come and steal the body and to say that somehow Jesus had been risen from the dead. The pagans of Rome and the hypocrites of Israel couldn't afford to let that happen. And so they made sure to cover the entrance of the tomb with a huge boulder, and to seal the stone and to set a guard of soldiers to watch the tomb by day and also by night. I mean, only a power greater than that power of Rome would be able to move the stone. When you sealed it, it was like saying, Rome's got this, we back this, anybody who changes this is going to be under the punishment and the death sentence probably of Rome. So how could it be then that early on Sunday morning that there is no stone covering the entrance of the tomb, Well, we know it's because our God does the impossible. That's what he does. Our God works miracles. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And what he wants to do is to glorify his name. And on that morning, it was by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, we got to understand that our God still works miracles. If you're here this morning and you're stuck in a bad place, look to God. If you're here this morning and it seems to you that there's no way out, look to God. If you're here this morning and your back is up against the wall, look to God. But know this, 
God wants to deliver you in a way that you may not expect. First, he wants to deliver you from your sin. Then he wants to deliver you from yourself. And then whether he delivers you from your situation or not, it's not as important to God as him building up your character. That's not as important to God as him developing in you patient endurance and completing in you whatever it is that you're lacking. Sometimes he chooses to deliver you by building your faith and allowing you to to change a perspective in a way that you're now delivered from the chains of depression or fear or anger because you're walking in the truth and in the light of his word. That's what we see so often through scripture. And so now that we've seen the consideration for the body of Christ, let's look now at our second heading this morning, the confusion about what happened to Christ. Your next blank, did someone take the body. There's a little confusion going on here in verse 2. After Mary Magdalene and the others saw that the stone had been taken away, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Mary, notice in verse 2, she's presuming that they had taken the Lord out of the tomb. She's not thinking resurrection, She's just thinking, you know what? They've taken him out of the tomb. Jesus' body was not there. And her first thought was somebody picked up the body and they placed it somewhere else. But just as we read uh, that in Matthew 27, the Pharisees and Pilate were working together. Uh, The last thing that they wanted was for the body to be taken out of the tomb. That's the last thing they, they wanted because it, that would be worse than, than what happened before. So that's why they had the tomb sealed with the soldiers guarding the entrance. It would have brought Pilate great comfort to know that he wouldn't have to deal with the stressful trial of Jesus anymore. It would have brought the Pharisees great relief to know they wouldn't have to debate Jesus in public. They wouldn't have to face the crowds. They wouldn't have to somehow explain away his miracles anymore. And so these authorities did not take the body. They wanted that body, trust me, they wanted that body to stay in that grave forever so they could be done with it once and for all. The authorities did not take the body of Christ. So the next question is, well, did the disciples take the body? And I would say to you, absolutely not. The disciples all fled when Jesus was arrested. Only John was bold enough to be there at the foot of the cross. The disciples are now in hiding as they were all considered outlaws because of their association with Jesus. The disciples weren't even planning to go to the tomb that day. It was Mary Magdalene and her other friends who had to run back to where they were and tell them that the tomb was empty. It is significant, again, that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ were believing women. Among the unbelieving Jews of that day, the testimony of women was not held in high regard. Unfortunately, the unbelieving Jewish rabbis had even said this, quote, it is better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman, close quote. Now, that's ridiculous, right? We understand that men and women have equal value and footing and dignity before God. That before God, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither a woman or a man, uh, neither a barbarian or a Scythian. The idea is that the human race, and there's only one human race, by the way. We're all created in the image of God. And as 
image bearers, men and women, have the beauty of testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love how Jesus reveals himself to women and he held them and respected them, held them in high regard. And they knew that their Savior now is alive. They're they're starting to figure it out. It's starting to come together. Some of the synoptics talked about how the angels tell them, hey, he who is here is now risen. He's no longer here. And so we understand here that these women had that testimony, and they began to share that to others. And the disciples, what we're talking about though here is, you know, who stole the body. It wasn't the authorities, I'm telling you. It wasn't the disciples. They would not have stolen the body. They had no desire or no motive to steal the body. In fact, they spent the rest of their lives preaching the gospel of the resurrection. If they knew that Jesus Christ had really died and never come back to life, why would they give their life for the rest of their lives, to preach the gospel and to become, according to church history, martyrs for the resurrection. All except John, who was put out in, in uh, exile in Patmos for the later, later years of his life. Uh, no one would do that if they knew it was a hoax. If they knew that it was a lie, people don't live for a lie, they live for the truth. Now, there are people who give their lives for what they believe in, and they do believe in lies, but it's because they're deceived. These disciples knew that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. They're not deceived. They're now devoted more than ever before to spend the rest of their life living for the truth. This is what Paul said about preaching the resurrection. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 15, that he would rather die than have anyone tell him that he can't preach the gospel. In the next verse, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says this, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So in verse 15, he says, I'd rather die did not preach the gospel. In the next verse, he says, I'm basically accursed if I don't preach the gospel. I have to give testimony to that which I know is true. And so all the authorities had to do, by the way, if the disciples had stolen the body or if if the authorities had stolen the body, all they would have to do to keep the apostles from preaching the resurrection was to produce the body of Christ. If somebody would have wanted to say, he didn't rise from the dead, here's his body right here. That's all they had to do. But of course, they couldn't produce the body of Jesus because Jesus was and is alive. Jesus is alive. They can't produce the body because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he was buried and that on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul said, he appeared to me as one untimely born. And so we understand Jesus made his appearance over and over and over again to hundreds of people, 500 at one time. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus made his bodily appearance to these apostles in such a way that it it really endeared them and emboldened them in a way that they would be able to preach the gospel for the rest of their lives. I mean, this changed their heart. They went from running away from Jesus at the crucifixion to running to Jesus and running to the town square. They were willing to preach the gospel. They were willing to face heartache and pain. They were willing to do whatever it took because the resurrection changes everything. 
It changes your focus, it changes how you live, and it can change your life this morning. This morning, you can be resurrected just like the song that we're singing because it changes everyone's life who would come and put their faith in a risen Savior. And so let's look now at verses 3 through 7. The next question here, your next blank says, what was in the tomb? So Jesus is not there, right? There's some confusion about it, but hopefully we've clarified that a little bit. So what was in the tomb? It's interesting what John records here, verses 3 through 7. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Here's Peter and John. John was the other disciple. He never refers to himself by name in this gospel. He refers to himself as the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. Which, by the way, I think we could all refer to ourselves that way. I'm the one whom Jesus loved because he loves all of us who are in Christ, right? But they're running towards the tomb, right? In fact, they started off maybe just with a walk. When they first started off in verse 3, it says they were going towards the tomb. And it's almost like Peter and John are like, all right, we're going to go check this out. Mary Magdalene and these other ladies are telling us the stones rolled away. What's going on? And I can just see them kind of walking and they kind of look at each other and they're walking a little faster, you know, and they're looking at each other. And then it's an outright sprint and John takes off. Now we think John is the younger of the two. Peter, a more seasoned fisherman. John, uh, some people say, could have been as young as about anywhere between 17 and 19. We don't know for sure. But John beats him to the tomb. And John does what John does. You know, he gets there, he looks down, it would have been dug into the side of a hill, uh, the tomb there for Joseph of Arimathea, and he looks in and there's no body. There's no physical corpse of Jesus there, and there's the linen cloths which had been wrapped around the body of Jesus, and they were still in the tomb. And when Peter got there, he went right in. That's Peter being a little bit more uh, you know, bold and just sticking his foot in his mouth, sticking his body in the tomb. Like he's like, I'm not staying out, out here. I'm going all the way in. And he's impulsive. And there's a lot of good that can come from that, but be careful. All right. So he gets there and he goes in and he sees the linen cloths, but he also sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head. It was folded up and put in a place by itself. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like the scene of a grave robbery to me. First of all, why would the grave robbers have taken the corpse out of the linen cloths? I mean, how gross would that be to take a naked, putrefying body out of those cloths and carry it out? You would have to be a fool in order to be like, oh, I think I'll do it this way. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Not only that, but the face cloth is folded up. I don't know if you've ever been to the scene of a robbery, but thieves are not known to tidy up after themselves, right? They come in, they take what they want, they get out, broken glass, furniture turned over, drawers pulled out. That's what the scene typically looks like. And here, these cloths are just laying there, the face cloth folded up and set up in another place. I mean, I would say unlike Lazarus, who needed some help getting up out of his grave clothes, Jesus needed no help whatsoever, Jesus' resurrected and glorified body simply passed through the linen wrappings. 
On at least two other occasions, Jesus was able to enter a room where the door was locked, presumably by passing through the wall. Now, there's a lot of debate about this, whether or not his glorified body really went through the wall or he went through there. Either way, it's miraculous. I would just say he went through it. I don't see why we couldn't just be like, poof, he's out, right? Just like that. In fact, I would say that it wasn't Jesus who removed the stone, uh, the, the stone, the stone to get out. Because the angel said he did it, right? The earthquake came, the, the angel moved the stone. Jesus was already gone. He didn't have to move the stone to get out. The stone was moved by the angel so these other people could get in. That's why the stone was moved because Jesus' body is exactly what he wants it to be in a glorified state. And we understand that this is an incredible uh, occurrence of the resurrection that needed no help. Remember, Lazarus needed some help. When, when he came out, Jesus is like, unbind him and let him go. Jesus doesn't need any help with the resurrection. This is to show his all-sufficient power, that it's Christ and Christ alone, that God raised him from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead, the Holy Spirit was involved in his resurrection. There's verses to show all of that. I don't have them listed for you, but we understand this was a Trinitarian act no man or woman needed, and Jesus was resurrected so that he could save us from our sin. This picture of Jesus' resurrection ought to be our picture. I mean, we're told again and again throughout the Bible, particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, that you're dead in your trespasses and in your sin. That's us. We're dead. We're born in our iniquity. And we're dead in our trespasses and our sin. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, that by grace you have been saved. It's this miracle of the resurrection that leads to the miracle of your salvation. He came back to life so that you can have life. He was freed from his grave clothes so that you could be free from your sin. He left the tomb so that you can also one day leave this earth. His body was glorified so that you also can have a glorified body in heaven. He lives so that you can live and worship and follow him. And this leads us to our final heading this morning, number three, the comprehension based on the scripture and on experience, verses eight to 10. Just look at verse eight. Your next blank says, you must see and believe. You must see and believe. Verse eight, then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. And so now that Peter has totally immersed himself in the tomb, John now steps in. And sometimes it takes more than a stoop and a look to really get it. Sometimes you got to enter all the way in. And when John entered all the way into the tomb, he saw and he believed. Now, let me just encourage you with this real quick. When John wrote this account, he used three words in verses 5, 6, and now 8 to describe the word seeing. In verse five, it says he saw the linen cloths lying there. And that verb saw in the original language simply means to glance in or to casually look in. And then in verse six, if you look, it says Peter entered the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth. That word saw is different than the one in verse five. The one there in verse six, it means to look carefully or to observe. 
Now, if you'll come all the way up here to verse 8, when it says that he saw and believed, this word for seeing has a different definition. It means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. You see the progression here? Just John, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking about saw casually. He's talking about saw with deeper observance. And now he's talking about seeing with intelligence and with a revealed understanding of what's going on. First, John reached the tomb. He saw it was empty and Jesus' grave closed there. But this was just a glance, so just a cursory look. Had he not Had he not entered in to look and do more research, he may not have seen what he saw. But when he entered into the tomb and he carefully observes what's going on following Peter, that's when he realizes the face cloth is somewhere else. And putting it together, again, verse 8, he saw, it began to dawn on John that this was for real. That Jesus really had been raised from the dead. That Jesus was alive. That the resurrection has now changed everything. And at this point, he believes Now, I I believe that John had already come to conversion prior to this moment. But I think that this word belief here, when it says that he now has this intelligence, that he now has deeper conviction, deeper belief, because now he's experiencing something as he is now starting to remember all that Jesus had said. He's now in the tomb realizing they didn't just place the body somewhere else. This is Jesus coming back to life. And now he believes with such a deep, solid conviction that it's, it's going to enable him now to get through anything in life. You, you see, becoming a Christian, you have to believe with all of your heart. You can't just do a cursory look and be like, oh yeah, you know, I've kind of been to church and I've looked around and I'm familiar with some Christian stuff. You can't even be like, well, I've dug in and I've kind of really examined the scripture and I think it has a lot of great content. No, no, no. You have to come all the way in. You have to come all the way in the tomb and see that it's empty. You have to come all the way in where Jesus is and ask God to open your heart and your mind and repent of your sin so that you can be totally transformed. And that happens to John. That happens to Peter. It happens to all the disciples. And that leads us to our next blank. It says you need the Holy Spirit to enable you to understand. Because verse 9 says this, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they had heard it, but they didn't fully understand it. Up to this point, Peter and John didn't fully understand that Jesus would be resurrected, even though he had told them many times, John 2, 19, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. In Luke 9, 22, Jesus said, the son of man will be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. Mark 8 says how Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus had told them that time and time again. And it's almost as if every time Jesus told them that, all they heard was the first part and not the last part. All they heard was, oh, Jesus is going to be killed. Boom. They pulled out of the conversation and they were like, what? How can you be killed? You're supposed to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. How can this happen? And it's almost as if they never heard Jesus said, and the Son of, God, the Son of Man must be killed. And in three days, he must be raised again. They didn't get that part. Maybe they heard the first part. In fact, they didn't even agree with the first part because one time when Jesus told them that, Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him and said, may it never be. And Jesus had to look at him and say, get thee behind me, Satan, because you're basically trusting in man, not trusting in God. And so what we're saying here is that it takes the Holy Spirit to allow you to hear all that God wants to say. 
And so many times we pull out of scripture when we read one little part and we don't let the entirety of that verse, of that chapter, of that book, of the Bible settle in your heart and mind so the Holy Spirit can totally do his work. See, the Holy Spirit has a tool. And the tool that he uses to change you is the word of God. And as you experience God's goodness, he begins to use the scripture at the same time to help you have a better cognition of where that is and what's going on in the Bible. Here's the argument in the church today. Some people are a bunch of Bible heads and they can spout out to you everything that's in the Bible. But their life has not been transformed. My friends, there are liberals in, in, in Christian universities and colleges who study this book and will know more about the facts in this book than you may ever know as far as a literary work. But they're not born again because they've never experienced salvation. Now, the other scary part is in Christendom. There's people over here who have incredible experiences and they seem to be running and going and doing all this stuff. But then when you bring the Bible to bear on something they say or believe that's not accurate, they say, well, I don't really need the Bible. I've got this experience. And what I'm saying to you is you need both. And the Holy Spirit balances both the experience of the resurrection. This is what John and Peter are experiencing. To, to say that they didn't uh, that that didn't happen is to dis dis detract from what's happening in this text. They experienced it. Here's what I'm saying to you. You can experience it too. You don't have to be in the tomb. You just have to read what the scripture says about it. And as you're reading it, the Holy Spirit has to do his work to help you come into this full understanding that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And that you also really must look to him in order to be born again. You need knowledge and you need an experience. And those two things come together in the scripture so that you can have new life. And then we see what happens in verse 10, your last blank. You should share uh, what you have learned with others. Verse 10, it's kind of anticlimactic after a resurrection text. It just says, then the disciples went back to their homes. And I'm like, what? Like, come on, what's going on? Like, they went back to their homes? Are you kidding me? So I'm making a little bit of an assumption here. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to assume, and they went back to their homes and told everybody Jesus is raised from the dead. That then they went back, they went ballistic, sharing with every person. And of course, that's what happens as you read throughout the rest of the account. I mean, I mean, not, you know, they had to see Jesus again after he was raised up in Galilee and all that. I, I get it. There took, took some time to, to, to get it uh, completely sorted out. But you know they went back home with this understanding that, you know what? Jesus is not in the grave. And that he's here and he's about to appear to them and just here in the next few hours, in the next few days, he's going to appear to them. And all I'm saying to you is, is when we see and understand and experience Christ and when you go back home, even though this verse doesn't say that, I want you to go back home and I want you to tell people what happened to you, all right? I want you to tell people what you saw. I want to tell people how you now understand God's word in such a deeper light and in such a more amazing light that you can't wait to share with others what God has revealed to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I just want to say to you, he is risen. It's in God's word. And I believe that deep down in your heart, you know it's true. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with that, I would suggest that it may be that you're struggling with your own sin and pride more than you're struggling with the truth of the resurrection. 
And the, the way to get through that is just say, you know what, God, I need to come to the end of myself and I repent of my pride, my immorality, my lying, my anger, whatever it is that you're struggling with. And I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus died and that he was raised again. And that's how you can come to saving faith. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, God forbid that we would ever somehow glance over this text with that first saw. That's my concern, is that we would be like, oh yeah, I know the tomb is empty. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? That changes everything. He is risen, changes your life, changes your marriage, changes how you live day to day, changes what you're storing up in heaven for all eternity, and it changes your joy, that your joy is tied to a constant truth of the resurrection. It's not tied to anything in this world so that you can truly live a spirit-filled life because he is risen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at this incredible text of John chapter 20 about the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, the face cloth folded up and placed somewhere else all by itself. All of this shows and points to the fact that Jesus, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he came through those grave clothes, that he came out of the tomb, that he presented himself as we saw to Mary and to the disciples and to over 500 even at one time. And so I pray, God, that this morning you would electrify in us a greater passion, a greater appreciation, a greater desire, a greater devotion, a greater response in how we live and how we serve and how we spend our days here on earth, God. It's so short. In the blink of an eye, our life is like a vapor and we'll soon be gone. And so help us to be reminded this morning that all, all that really matters is believing in the resurrection and living as someone who has been resurrected in a spirit-filled life of evangelism and discipleship and growth and maturity and serving and loving and, and, and doing all that you call us to do, God. I pray that you would help us as a church to do what you've called us to do because of the resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us your love through the crucifixion and showing us your power through the resurrection. And may that transform us forever, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.